In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You could follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Finding Time Again by Marcel Proust. Uh, Finding Time Again is the seventh and final volume of his great work in search of lost time. So really looking forward to reading it to complete uh, this great work of art, Finding Time Again by Marcel Proust. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is Explaining Life Through Evolution by Pro Santa Track Rap Party. I hope I'm saying that right. Pro Santa Chak Rab Party. Um, he is a professor at Louisiana State University, and he shares early in the book his um, reasons for writing the book and how he, in some ways, got pulled into this debate or this fight over teaching evolution. And I remember myself, uh, you know, seeing these debates uh, in different uh, states. It was becoming fought over do they have to teach evolution can they not teach evolution at all and instead teach something else like intelligent design or creationism or can they teach both and give children the um, option and a way of choosing which one to believe and so in his state of louisiana in 2008 uh, this started to be a call to action with what was called the louisiana science education act um, but in, as he says, even though that's the name of the law, Louisiana Science Education, um, you know, it was kind of the opposite, not teaching science and instead teaching the biblical account of creation in science classes um, as an alternative to evolution. And so that's around the time when he moved to um, Louisiana. So in some ways he was pulled into this type of debate or this whole situation. And so his goal he states early in the book, or one of his goals is to try to explain what evolution is and what it isn't and how we can understand it. So this also uh, involves addressing some of the misconceptions that people commonly have. And I realized I had some of them or at least needed some clarification on some things I thought I knew or didn't realize I didn't quite get about evolution. He also goes through the history of the science of evolution, which, as he says, science itself and the, the, the science of evolution, like evolution itself, goes through these incremental or can incrementally will change or the better ideas survive. Uh, there's some survival of the fittest of the ideas that go forward based on those that are more supported by the facts and data that we uncover. So he goes through that history, too, looking at uh, Darwin and also uh, Mendel and different contributors in the field of um, evolution and the science of evolution. He also discusses how, uh, you know, you sometimes will hear, well, it's just a theory when we say theory of evolution. And 
So uh, there's an important distinction to be made here that when uh, we use theory in a more casual social kind of context, usually we just mean I have a guess or a, almost like a hypothesis, but more like a hypothesis based on just a hunch. It's like, you know, I think I have a theory as to why he didn't show up that night. And it's like, well, you know, and it's some ideas about, well, one time he said this and he did that. So that's my theory. And so sometimes we take that same use of the word theory or meaning of the word theory and then apply it when scientists use use it to talk about the theory of gravity or the theory of of evolution. And it's not that same way. Um, these types of theories, he says, essentially you can look at it as fact in the sense that it's supported by so much information that it's a theory of the explanation of evolution, but not that evolution itself is something that's um, completely up for debate. So that can be misleading at times when we hear this term theory of evolution. It can make us think, well, they're still kind of figuring it out to see if it's even real or not. No, evolution is very real, but sometimes it might get refined, some aspects of our explanations are added to it. For example, something I learned about was um, neutral uh, genetic mutations that get passed on. So it's like a neutral evolution that is actually a big part of how uh, animals might become over time more different from one another. So it's not always the meaningful parts or the things we think lead to meaningful change and distinction that leads to uh, evolution in the same way we might think about it. It could be um, these neutral types of gene, gene mutations that get passed down as well. Um, another one of these misconceptions or myths, you've probably seen this um, poster or image that I'm looking at right now, which he puts in the book, and it comes from Rudolf Franz Zallinger, The March of Progress, or it was originally titled Road to Homo Sapiens. And it basically shows a uh, monkey with a tail that's completely hunched over and then slowly would kind of look more like apes that are less um, completely on all fours, a little bit stand, almost standing, but more uh, hunched over than what we are when we're standing up. And then what looks kind of like a caveman and then eventually to a, a walking man, completely walking upright as we might now. And so this, in a way, promotes two myths or misconceptions we might have about evolution. One is that we evolved from monkeys, that it was monkeys that became into us. When that's not the case, really, what it is is that with monkeys, we share a common ancestor that... Um, that ancestor evolved into both monkeys and into us, um, but it does not mean that we literally evolved from monkeys or that it could also bring the notion that if we keep having monkeys in the world, they will eventually become humans. And, and also this implies that uh, the second myth that being human is like the end of evolution, like this perfected form that all of, you know, beings have been evolving, all of life has been evolving, to eventually become humans, which are the fullest form, and we're at the end of evolution. And so when you look at this um, march of progress, it could give you that conception that, okay, that's what's been going on. Monkeys slowly became us, and before them, they were less, um, they were more primitive beings, and now they became us, which is not true. And so 
He presents it in other ways using things he calls a tree of life, which is a better way of looking at how we are all related through evolution. But we see that it's not this way that humans evolved from monkeys directly to become what we are now. And that was something that I, I didn't quite get or I hadn't quite understood and was explained quite well uh, in this book. So we see there are many misconceptions we tend to have. Again, that was one of his reasons for writing the book was to, in simple, uh, of course, there's science in the book, but in ways that can be read by a non-scientist to help understand um, evolution, what it is and what it isn't, and also to dispel some of these myths and misconceptions that we might have um, about evolution. And so that was something for me that was meaningful. Now, he also shares about this debate of creationism or looking at the Bible to understand how humans and all animals uh, were born or came to the planet, um, and also the scientific explanations. And he shares how they don't, science doesn't have to be anti-religion and, and religion doesn't have to be anti-science. And so uh, religion can is about things that involve faith and, and belief, and that can be very important and very important for an individual, but it doesn't mean that they there's answers for uh, science or explaining the world. And similarly, religion or science doesn't have to make any comment or decisions about religion. They can be um, in harmony. They don't have to be against one another. And so this notion that you're going to teach someone what your religion believes, well, as he shares other religions other than the Bible might have different creation myths or creation stories about how all the animals and humans came to be. And so if we're going to separate church and state, uh, we should be separating the church from education and what is taught, especially in public schools. So he does get into that debate as well, or those thoughts about that. Um, some interesting things, you know, I learned, or, or you get this perspective. For example, we evolved from fish, which he actually has an interesting, very short TED talk uh, that I, I saw today about um, evolution in general and how we evolved from fish. And that could partially explain, and all all mammals came from fish, the fish that probably were venturing into shallow water and learned slowly or evolved to be able to also breathe out of water. And then slowly this turned into um, uh, animals or creatures that were more permanently and then permanently on land and then that evolved to lots of animals but including all the mammals so we are all fish literally fish out of water as he says um, and this can also help explain why our bodies are the way they are there was an interesting chapter kind of about how crappy and i think it's a play on words crappy crappy there's also a fish with that name our bodies are when we look at uh, if you were trying to build for example a human body from scratch or you could build it to do all the things that we do, there's many things that you would do quite differently. Um, so because of how our backs are, because we're fish that were in water, there's things that make our back, for example, not very good at um, standing up for a long time. That's why if we stand still for a long time, we, we don't do so well. We might need to sit or adjust our position or our knees are not made ideally for walking uh, upright the way that we do. And so that leads to, to issues that we experience or things with our hearts and blood pressure is affected by gravity, but 
that would be the same issue if we were in the water. Um, so that's an, that was interesting and a reminder of this sense that we, when we think of evolution as just getting more and more perfect or making the perfect thing, uh, evolution doesn't have, uh, you know, this design and it also doesn't, can't have intention and it can't just change things to make them better. It has to, uh, it works with what already exists. So if there are many humans and some of them are stronger in a certain way, those ones might survive, but you can't just make them stronger. Or even the, the wording I think we sometimes use, for example, you know, giraffes got longer necks so they could eat the grass that was higher or eat the leaves that's higher, I should say. Um, and it's not that they intended to do that, but we could see that if there was a species of giraffe or giraffe-like creatures, the ones that had slightly longer necks possibly were able to reach more of the higher leaves and then survive better or be stronger and then have more offspring. So over time, these longer necks um, became more a part of the population and that could have continued over generations and generations to lead to the necks that they have. Um, so uh, there was this chapter on our, our body as another um, kind of uh, knock on human exceptionalism, that we are this pinnacle and perfection of evolution when we are not. And also it doesn't mean that other animals stopped evolving. So this sense that the monkeys turned into us is kind of like monkeys are at some lower level and we are at some higher level when really all the beings that we see alive today have been evolving probably for many, many, even millions of years possibly. Um, and so he traces, uh, or not just him, but the science traces uh, life back to about 3.5 billion years ago, um, which is uh, about a billion years after the Earth was formed. And then here it brings up some interesting hypotheses or conjectures really about uh, was that the first time that life evolved or was there life multiple times uh, throughout the Earth's history? And even that itself, he has a chapter about that, you know, what is life and how do we even define it? And it's not quite clear because there are some definitions that come up, but then things like viruses, they're these kind of in-between of life or not life because they need other, uh, another being, a host to replicate. But in a lot of ways, they seem very alive and go through evolution in the sense that they can evolve, as we saw, for example, with uh, COVID-19, we saw these different strains or variants. That's a type of evolution that these, some of the ones would survive and they would be resistant to the ways we were fighting it and the new ones would survive. And we also see this with bacteria as well, that they evolve and they become more resistant and can survive certain things. So th there was really these, uh, for me, it was very fascinating to, to learn about evolution, something that I'd studied before but I did get some insights into understanding in ways that I was not aware of. Now, after the break, I want to continue on some of the other themes he talks about because he uh, talks about these myths, misconceptions about evolution itself, the history of evolution, but then also some uh, ideas and concepts that relate to things we're, we're dealing with in social levels. And also I'll discuss things related to trust and trusting science, another theme that comes up that he discusses in the book as well. So again, uh, the book is Explaining Life Through Evolution by Prosanta Chakrabarti. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Discussing the book Explaining Life Through Evolution by 
Prosanta Chakrabarti. I think um, the way I'm saying his last name is also going through a process of evolution. I apologize if I'm getting it wrong. I think I am. Um, but I uh, really enjoyed uh, his book about looking at evolution and how we can better, definitely help me better understand it. But some insights at the end of the book or in the last section of the book about some very socially relevant, socially political relevant um, issues that come up right now. Unfortunately, almost everything becomes political and polarized. Uh, but there's a chapter looking at our um, ancestry and genealogy, which relates to race. And so he talks a bit about uh, these ancestry tests that we can take, you know, 23andMe and other ones like that where people swab the inside of their mouth and they send in to their DNA to figure out where they're from. And um, I know actually it's also been used, these tests, for somebody's figuring out or learning some genetic predispositions you might have, health. So that could be helpful. But I tend to find these a uh, little bit strange. People are trying to figure out kind of in a way who they are, I think. To me, it actually relates to um, this general notion of trying to figure out who we are in a more global sense, self-awareness, understanding ourselves. And we love to find ways to understand ourselves better. You know, which Disney princess am I? Which uh, M&M color are you? Or I don't know, whatever of these tests that people take, personality tests, um, IQ tests. There's a bunch of different tests that people like to take that I think often are related to this, trying to understand ourselves, but we sometimes look to the wrong places. The Disney princesses one is a, is a good one, but other than that, um, you know, these ways of trying to figure out who we are. And so I think sometimes people look to these 23andMe types of tests, like figure out, well, who am I? Uh, some of the funny reactions I've seen is like someone finds out that they're from a certain region or they get some, you know, some of their ancestry comes back saying they're from this region. And they think that's why they like that culture or their type of food or their kind of music when that that would be unrelated. That's the culture. It's not going to be um, literally, you know, we say it's in your DNA. It's not going to be in your DNA. Uh, but he does point to how even in understanding yourself, it's, it's pretty incomplete the way these things work. To begin with, it's comparing it with people who live in that area now. So let's say, uh, he, you know, he shares this example if it says you're French or you have this percentage of French, it's based on who is in that area now because we can't have the the DNA to match it with people who lived there, let's say, I don't know, 50,000 years ago or however long ago. So, um, you know, we, we and also you can even have siblings that might get different uh, feedback on that because some things won't show up in your genome or some of your ancestors. They might be your ancestors, but their DNA may no longer be in your DNA because of sexual reproduction or recombination and how we pass our genes down. So they might not necessarily be in those. So you can take those tests if you'd like, but um, I haven't done it myself. And based on what I saw him discussing, he doesn't say don't do it, but it does seem to me like it's showing that there's less value in it than I think people often put into it. But in that same chapter, he also talks about race and again very polarizing uh, topic one that's had a big impact and he does share something that you maybe have heard before i've heard it many times um, even i remember from the first one of the first times i heard it presented was all the way back 
in undergraduate and in my anthropology class where uh, Professor uh, Daniel Fessler, uh, he had a whole lecture on this topic, but how um, race is not a biological construct, or as he puts it here in this book, uh, a biological reality. Um, it is a social construct. And maybe you've heard that term before. Race is a social construct. And so that means that there isn't some clear way based on, let's say, our DNA to clearly say what it means to be white, black, um, Hispanic, Asian. You know, we, we do a lot of things as human to try to divide or to make different groups of people, but and it feels very real once we do that. And so even though it's a social construct, it doesn't mean it can't have real consequences, which is, I think, something that people confuse sometimes. They say, well, if race isn't real, then how can you talk about racism? Well, it's not that race is real as a biological construct. When it's a social construct, it can still have social consequences that you can still uh, impact um, impacts people's lives significantly. He actually has a quote at the end of the chapter that I really liked from Joseph L. Graves Jr., who is the, the first African-American in the U.S. to get a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology. And that quote is, just because race doesn't exist in an evolutionary sense doesn't mean there isn't racism. So absolutely there can be racism even if race isn't a, a true biological uh, entity. And so it was um, good to read that or for me to review some of his thoughts on this theme. Even, for example, you know, he says he himself, he says, I'm Indian, but as a racial identity and not as a nationality, because both my parents are Indian and I was born in Montreal. And then he gets into, um, you know, what does Indian mean versus Asian and the different ways we might label it for in the U.S., for example, they would all be under Asian, but then sometimes we might consider Asian to be something else. And then talking even about his wife and then their kids and how do we differentiate these things. And so we see that the what seems like has a lot of meaning or very significant isn't. Again, it doesn't mean people haven't been discriminated against, even experienced slavery based on uh, what people thought was races and their explanations for that. Um, but it doesn't mean there's some biological reality that has value. Uh, the next chapter was on sex, gender, and sexuality. And so this was also, uh, this is a, it's always been in the public sphere, but very strongly lately where we've seen things related to transgender issues and rights and the LGBTQ community. Um, also, for example, seeing things like um, What is a Woman? I think there's a whole documentary movie with that title. And this has become an extremely politicized and polarized topic looking at sex, gender, and sexuality. So um, to begin with, he shares how sex, although sometimes people think there's only two and everyone falls under these two categories, it is a bit more complex and more on a spectrum than you might realize. Even he shares, so he himself has identical twins. And I thought the same thing that, he, you know, he's... He had, has had people say, wait, so a boy and a girl, and, you know, he said, how, how could they think boy and a girl, identical twins, have to be the same sex, but not necessarily. So he shares how there can be a way where um, during the, the formation of the sex cells, this could happen that leads to one being um, ending up male and one being female. Uh, 
There are also individuals, for example, who are XXY and people who are uh, single X females. Um, there's also people who their anatomical sex might not match uh, their, their uh, chromosomal sex. So there can be, for example, women, uh, males who are XX or females who are XY. So they might appear one way, but we would actually, if we looked at their uh, chromosomes, see something else. There's also people who are born intersex, and that actually proportion was higher than I thought. So he shares that research puts the proportion of intersex people at around 1.7% of the U.S. population, or roughly 5.6 million Americans. So close to 2%, 5.6% Americans are born intersex. So that is a fairly substantial number of people that wouldn't fit this binary of male-female. And so we can see that something that at times we try to simplify as just a binary is not really so. And so that's something we, we see a lot, this even races, although it might not be a binary, sometimes it is like white and non-white has had some um, definitely a binary that has existed, but in general, trying to reduce things to some very small number of categories or a binary, when in reality it is not that. The binary might have some value that it might, let's say, include lots of people, but we definitely cannot say it includes all people when just, as I was saying, there's over 5.6 million intersex individuals, and that's just one of the, the variants that wouldn't fit neatly into the sex binary. Uh, then he does talk about gender, which he describes that gender is an expression of social and sexual identity unique to human cultures and one that, var that varies from culture to culture. And so gender is something that's harder to uh, measure or look at in animals, although there is many instances of um, animals who don't follow the typical heterosexual norm. Um, and so this also relates to then the sexuality section that he has later in the same chapter. Uh, we often hear this as one of the arguments I've heard against homosexuality, and in that case, then put onto homosexuals or people who are um, not heterosexual and not uh, following the uh, traditional, what is considered traditional, male, female, and uh, heterosexual lifestyle, that, well, it's not natural, and even that it's not part of evolution, because how could it be evolutionary possible for a male to be attracted to a male when that cannot result in offspring. But uh, you might recall a book I talked about, I think a year or two ago, Queer Ducks by Elliot Schreffer. And in that book, I forgot the exact number, but I believe it was over a thousand species have been found to display non-heterosexual behavior. So behavior that wouldn't fit what is sometimes quote unquote considered the natural, which is we think every animal follows these things, it turns out that's not the case. So that argument that it's unnatural um, doesn't really fit with uh, what we actually observe in humans and then also in any of the, uh, in many animal species as well. So it was uh, insightful to hear his scientific arguments for these issues that we have unfortunately taken to uh, be very hurtful to many individuals of our uh, communities, people who don't fit these quote-unquote standards or what they're supposed to be, a heteronormative um, type of a 
bias that we have and his he was sharing the scientific information and saying that even if we didn't have it out we would he would hope we would uh, be accepting of of all people and how they are and who they are and not make them feel bad or to punish or persecute them in any way because of that but he does provide some scientific explanations and understandings related to those topics um, he does also have a chapter called combating post-truth with trust and I thought that was a a good title for this chapter and a good concept that uh, he even says if someone let's say doesn't believe in evolution and says I believe in what the Bible says about evolution that by just throwing a bunch of facts at them he's not going to change their mind by saying well look at this and look at this fossil because if someone has some very strongly held belief they are gonna hold on to it and they'll find a way well god put that there or even i've heard people say well if there's fossils that show that the earth is millions of years old well god is just putting that there to test us to see how firm is our faith to believe in what he's told us is the truth um so you're not gonna convince someone just by the facts now here he's sharing not just the facts that's why he shares the story of how we came to understand evolution and this theory which is not just a theory in the casual sense but a explanation for what we observe um, he does share this history and also the science how it was acquired he says that he puts footnotes of all the original articles so that if you want to go look at the articles to to read them that might help um, but also at the end of the day a lot of people just won't change their mind because uh, of an issue of trust and we've heard this a lot especially uh, around the vaccine things would come up where you know some people say i trust the science and then some people say they don't and i would always think of it it's not really that people were trusting science because i know when people would hear that argument sometimes they say well how can you not trust science you use your phone every day you use these things that are based on science and really i think it was more trusting the scientific community or the scientists the scientists uh, as a group that they are not necessarily telling us the truth or that these higher powers of government are not telling us the truth but this trust for scientists i think is unfortunate that we've seen that erode where people um think that they're they don't have to believe or shouldn't believe the majority of the scientific community and might find some one voice who is claims to have the truth and you know sometimes it's based on a conspiracy theory or a theory of why and that's maybe this is these types of theories are more that casual way of using the word uh, a theory as to why they're hiding the truth or something like that is is going on i think that's unfortunate i think one of the reasons this comes about is that um, science is self-correcting and so by that definition it's it's definitely far from perfect and often wrong so it's especially with new things and we saw this with covid the things will be gotten wrong by the scientists they're doing their best to try to understand something new uh, you know, even it was called the novel coronavirus a new virus they were trying to understand things of how it spreads what's useful and not useful for stopping the spread and all sorts of things and of course they're going to get things wrong and i think sometimes when we then learn that the scientists were wrong people use this as evidence of see you, you can't trust them they don't know what they're talking about um but uh, the way I think of it is that they will get things wrong, but they are our best chance of getting it right. It's kind of like if you need someone to fly a plane, pilots aren't perfect, but you'd rather have a pilot who has the most experience and knowledge 
and a group of pilots and a team with experience and knowledge flying the plane. Now, if one plane crashes, we wouldn't say, well, let's just have random people fly the planes. We would still want the best people to do that. And that's how I look at science. They're definitely not perfect. I still think we can be skeptical. It doesn't mean you blindly disbelieve things. That's a different type of faith and would be um, based on kind of almost a religious faith if you don't question it at all. But all in all, trusting that the experts who have studied and the community of experts who have studied something will have the best understanding of that phenomenon, I think does make sense to have that type of mindset to, in that way, trust the scientists, trust the science and the scientific community, knowing that they will get things wrong because science and scientists will be imperfect, but they they likely have the best chance of knowing um, what there is to know about whatever it is we are looking at. But yeah, coming back to the book, I really did enjoy it. I hadn't read a book quite on evolution itself for a long time, and some things definitely I learned that I didn't know that was helpful for me, and especially hearing his thoughts, because I haven't read a book in a long time, related to sex and gender and race, uh, some of these things that are highly politicized, I thought was very enlightening as well. So again, the book is Explaining Life Through Evolution by Prosanta Chakrapati. I uh, hope you'll check it out. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. To conclude the show, um, just wanted to share some thoughts about what's going on in the Middle East. And I'm sure like many of you have unfortunately just been seeing nonstop uh, horrific images of what's going on there, loss of life and um, people in anguish and agony over loved ones who have died or have been kidnapped. And it's been really heartbreaking and um, far be it for me to give insights about what's going to happen or what's supposed to happen. Um, just wanted to share some thoughts on it more just from a, I don't want to say even psychological level, maybe human level about what's going on. Um, my hope is just for whatever is the most peaceful resolution to what's happening. Um, it's sad that so many people have died, especially so many children have died. So many innocent people have died in this process. And I hope for whatever's possible to make that the least. And, um, it would mean that, you know, cooler heads might have to prevail or we might have to find longer term solutions. I don't know exactly. Like I said, I won't have, I don't have those, but I just hope for that and hope that whatever happens leads to, um, the least amount of lives being lost and longer term peace and stability. Uh, what's been heartbreaking also just seeing how intense reactions have been. Understandably, people are very passionate about these issues. Uh, I do think it's always been a polarizing topic, but I think we've gotten into even more polarizing times where people are so firmly holding in their beliefs and ideas of what's right, who is right, and um, demonizing and dehumanizing the other side, which we've seen throughout history. Now, although I just said that, I will add this. I think I've also been shocked by um, the amount of pro-Hamas support I've seen in different ways, from protests and people in the street to even online. Um, 
you know, these actions are not justified to go and kill and and rape and kidnap people is not justified and okay. And this mindset in the Hamas organization is not one that is unfortunately going to lead to peace. I think we have to be very clear about that. And supporting them, to me, is not supporting the Palestinian people who are, I think, rightfully wanting their own sense of peace and freedom that is understandable but it's not going to be this way you know from both sides you're not going to kill yourself to freedom or to peace in this the way that things are are going you're definitely not going to kill your way to peace which is i think what we have been trying to do for a lot of human history and i think we've seen that that doesn't work what's been very sad is also seeing how it's led to people being more on edge, more fearful. There have been, um, you know, statements made last Friday was supposed to be this, uh, the 13th was supposed to be this big day. I don't think there was that much that happened, um, thankfully, but still there was some things that happened just today. I saw, the, maybe you saw in a, a soccer match in Brussels or outside of the soccer match in um, it was between uh, Belgium and Sweden. There was a, a shooter. And last one I saw, at least two people were killed in that shooting. And apparently he claimed to say it was some, he was somehow associated with ISIS. Then I also saw a story of a, a six-year-old boy in Chicago who was killed by his landlord. And, and apparently the landlord said that it was about them being Muslim. I think they might have been Palestinian, but they were Muslim and saying that and he had stabbed him and his mother and sadly the six-year-old boy did not survive i think that was yesterday or the day before and so it's just been painful and heartbreaking to see um all of this and to whoever is is listening and i hope we can all keep this mindset that this type of the hate and the anger is not going to get us to uh, the peace that we want um i've talked to many people that even don't feel safe in different uh, areas, even for example, in Los Angeles, I've talked to many people of the Jewish community who they say they are afraid to go or don't feel comfortable going to temple or kosher markets or kosher restaurants because they're afraid they could be targeted or even having armed guards outside of kosher restaurants because there is that much of this feeling of a lack of safety. And so we see a lot of uh, anger and hate that's being put out there. And I hope all of us can realize that that's not going to lead to anything good. So in whatever way you can spread love, I know that's a, a cheesy cliche message, but really to keep that in mind, because in these moments where you can feel some really intense feelings of, of anger and, um, you know, uh, indignation and all of that, I can understand that. And I felt that in a variety of ways, but recognizing that taking that out on someone else is not going to lead to a resolution or to even helping those people maybe you're worried about or, or concerned about. That's not going to be the path to do that. And hopefully we can all be a bit more mindful of that and even what we put online. So um, unfortunately, the, the things that get promoted online or get the most attention online are the most extreme, the most aggressive, intense, the ones that create the most attention because it's good and bad. The people who like it, love it, that it's so on their side, whatever that means. And the people that are against it, hate it so much and might share it to say, look how you know crazy the other side is and look how stupid these people are. So 
I, I hope you'll be mindful of you and what you put out there and what you yourself tweet or put on Instagram and what you also share from other people. You know, we're not going to get to a good resolution if we keep fighting or looking at the other side as so, so wrong. I've seen images, propaganda from both both sides, um, but showing uh, dehumanizing the other side. For example, I saw an image of a someone stomping um, a bug that was supposed to be, I don't know if it was Palestinian or Hamas or something, but but making them into a bug and squashing them. And it's so sadly ironic because this is the, this is the same type of propaganda that we saw before and during the Holocaust where uh, Jewish people were likened to vermin or different types of non-human you know, pests and things that should be exterminated. And that was um, in some ways helps usher in the treatment when we see the other side as less than human, as either like an animal, um, there's ver- various forms of dehumanization. One is like they're animals and not even human in some way, some subhuman. And, you know, when we read a book like the one I read about evolution and we see how we humans share essentially almost all our DNA and we're so close, all of us, um, we see we're not really so different, but we can have this way of looking at this other, whoever that other is in that moment, this group as less than. And so animals or um, bugs, those kinds of things are a common type of way we do that. Or that there's some kind of evil machine. They're just these animals. And even I've heard from both sides, people saying that people, that the kids even are evil of that group. They're already bad and they're, you know, even giving up on the children already. And to me, that's just to try to justify whatever is done that, okay, even if children are killed, it's not a big deal. They were already these bad, evil kids. And I think that's a horrible, horrible way for us to to look at the world and to look at each other and never one that is justified. So I've seen that and I hope you won't share anything that's that type of propaganda like that because um, unfortunately we sometimes think that, no, it's just something artistic or it's free speech. And of course I'm, I believe in free speech, but I also think we're responsible for what we say with that free speech and the impact that it has. Though you can't just say, because I have free speech, I can say whatever I want. If you promote hate and negativity and dehumanization and racism and war, that has an impact and you have to also be responsible for that impact. So I hope we can all be mindful of that. It's very heated times right now. People are very tense and on edge very passionate about what is going on. Understandably, people's lives have been lost and continue to be lost and are at risk of being lost. So I don't think it means you have to be quiet, but I hope we will be mindful and careful and promoting things like quick revenge and and uh, killing the other side. I really hope is not something that we look at or promote. And if you're outside of the area and you see this type of violence, which unfortunately we have seen that as well, that I was talking about, you know, that that's really horrible. And that's why we have to be careful or be mindful of these types of things. So it's just been so heartbreaking to see. Um, and, and something I also talked about on Friday's show that I think we should be informed and you have to see what's going on, but be mindful of how much you consume of the news, especially graphic violent images. I know there's lots of those too. And, and that's very hard to get out of your head when you see things like that. And lastly, I'll say it's, uh, 
a reminder of you when I say that, that there's a luxury that someone like myself and maybe many of you listening have that we can just turn off the news and go away from the war zone. But sadly, there are many people that can't do that. It is a reality of their life. And so I do hope we continue the compassion and the care and to promote whatever we can towards peace because there are still people suffering. I'm not saying we should look away and be silent, but be mindful of of what we share and promoting hate or violence or aggression is likely going to lead to more loss of life rather than a peaceful and stable resolution, which I hope we are all uh, wishing for. And I hope that will be the truth. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Azale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. (music) 